You are listening to The Adventures of Sariputta and Moggallana. I'm your host, Morris Sullivan. Once, as the Buddha and Sariputta both neared the end of their lives, Sariputta went to the Buddha, paid his respects, and then said, I am confident that there is no contemplative nor Brahman whose awakening surpasses yours. The Buddha thought this was a pretty bold statement. That's quite a lion's roar, he said. That lion and the lion's roar are significant symbols in Buddhism. When a lion roars, that's a very confident, self-assured sound, and one that silences all the other noises of the jungle. Well, then the Buddha said, So, then, have you perceived the awareness of all other worthy ones with your own mind? Can you know for yourself the minds of all those who have awakened in the past? He was asking, had Sariputta seen for himself the virtue, the wisdom, the meditative ability, and the liberation of all other possible priests and ascetics who had ever awakened? Sariputta said no, he couldn't claim that. Well, what about the awakened ones of the future, the Buddha asked. Did Sariputta know the minds of the future priests and contemplatives and their spiritual attainments? Well, no, Sariputta didn't know that either. Well, then, the Buddha wondered, have you encompassed my awareness with your own? He asked, did Sariputta know for himself with his own mind the level of the Buddha's virtue, realization, wisdom, meditation, liberation? And the answer was again, no. So the Buddha said, well, how is it then that you can speak this lion's roar so confidently? Sariputta said he didn't know the minds of the awakened ones of the past, present, and future, but he said, I have known for myself the integrity of the Dharma. And he used this analogy. It's as if there is a royal city with impenetrable walls and with only a single gate. If you were to walk all the way around the city, you would not see a crack big enough even for a cat to slip through. You would know that whatever person enters or leaves this city can only come or go through this gate. In the same way, he said, I know for myself that awakened ones, whether of the past, present, or future, could only do so by this gate, by abandoning the mental hindrances that prevent wisdom, by establishing the foundations of mindfulness, and by developing the factors of awakening. This doesn't mean that only the Buddha was awake, but that to awaken required a great deal of spiritual development. And having seen this truth for himself, Sariputta could confidently roar this lion's roar. I'm happy to say that I have a guest with me today. Bharat Junjunwala has been exploring the teachings of awakened persons, the prophets of the world's great religions. He now lives in the Indian Himalayas, but he studied economics and received his PhD from the University of Florida. His spiritual journey has been shaped by things like living in an Indian slum to get a firsthand sense of what poverty really is like and by taking courses in Buddhism in Dharamsala, the Indian home of the Dalai Lama and the Tibetan government in exile. He's offered a number of books on economics, culture, and religion, and has become an active proponent of interfaith dialogue. His most recent book is Common Prophets of the Jews, Christians, Muslims, and Hindus. define your spiritual life and if so how do you define it what do you what do you call yourself when somebody asks you since childhood for reasons not known to me 
I have always been engaged with this question that if uh, there is one God, why do people fight with each other in the name of that one God? I had uh, class fellows who were Muslims and my grandmother would not like them to come into our house and and so on you know and, and that was something uh, that I, I but i really don't know why this question always arose to me now as it uh, as i'm an economist as an economist i realized you see the modern economics works on the assumption that consumption is welfare if you eat more, if you have better air conditioning, if you have a bigger car, you are happier. But I belong to a reasonably wealthy family. And um, I was born, so to say, with a silver spoon in my mouth. My family had two sugar factories and things of that kind. And I didn't see that happiness around. I, I, I always saw my family members griping, fighting, wanting more money and more money and more money and more things. And the, the, I think the, the critical point, one, one critical thing that happened was that um, I was studying for my bachelor's degree and my family had provided me with a motorcycle. Now my younger bro brother was studying in another town and he was provided with a car. So I, when I used to be in the family, I used to think that, oh, I have a motorcycle, he has a car, and you know, I'm kind of inferior. But then when I used to compare myself with my class fellows in my class, I was the only one who had a motorcycle. All the others at best had the bicycle. So I was the king. I was the king among them. I was kind of forced into the question that it is not the motorcycle that gives you happiness. It's very clear. Because if motorcycle gave you happiness, then you're, you should be, have been happy even when you were with your brother with his car. And I think that started a chain of thinking, which uh, gradually led them. Then I began to get uh, study the Gita, the Bible, Quran, and so on and so forth. And that is how I, that was the trigger and that is how I evolved. How does your spirituality affect the way you've made a living and the way you've lived your life? As I began to read the Bible, I found that the stories of the Bible were very similar to stories of the Hindus. And so that led me into geography, archaeology, and, the, and reading the texts. And once I started reading these texts from the historical or geographical angle, the, the spirituality also, you know, came out. I mean, you cannot kind of uh, separate them. And if you're, if you're talking about the physical location of Abraham, you cannot uh, escape thinking about his monotheism. And that is how gradually the whole spiritual uh, context uh, grew into me. Yes, at a certain point it did happen that I was a consultant to international donors like uh, Swiss Development Corporation, Swedish um, Care, Oxfam, things of that kind. And at a particular time, I did take a conscious decision that I would not earn more money now. I would 
reduce my earning and devote myself to these uh, uh, religious come spiritual pursuits so that was the only time where i took a conscious decision otherwise i think it just gradually grew 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 on to me i mean without even my having taken a conscious decision that's a pretty dramatic conscious decision though that you're not going to make more money you're going to spend your time studying spirituality and pursuing spirituality was that scary well well you see i i i write a column for the indian newspapers <clears throat> and that gives me enough to make my bread and butter i mean i i'm comforted i don't have a bmw i don't have a rolls royce but i have a normal car i have a normal two bedroom house and i'm i'm comfortable so what the decision i took was and i can earn that much money by working one to two days in a week so i instead of spending the rest of the five to six days of a week trying to do consultancy and make more money i kept writing my column so that i was economically stable which i still do even today i write my column and that gives me my bread and butter and the surplus time so to say i use for my uh, spiritual and uh, religious pursuits and that is giving me a very very fine and comfortable <clears throat> balance because uh, i don't have to beg and and i don't and and i have plenty of time i mean if i have five and a half days in a week to do my pursuits i i think that's good enough yeah that's wonderful but that's that's not what most people do and, that, and i don't think that's what most people would think someone who had gone to school to study economics yeah but <laughs> just to share with you yeah my 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 father was very unhappy with me very unhappy because he was a hardcore businessman and he would only ask me how much did you earn that's it and if yeah. you don't earn anything then all the rest is not relevant so uh, yes it was it was i would say uh, disorienting at some points of time when i was put into that kind of a question but i think i have enough inside me uh, that I, I i just hold it i just let it pass and it just works beautifully there's no no, no issues i was just thinking of the metta sutta are you familiar with that where the where the buddha talks about the importance of goodwill so, uh, the the buddha is just saying in the scripture you know this is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace and then he's describing what they should be like and he says unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways are a real important part of that do you think you're a happier person because you made that decision oh yes by far by 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 no no, no by leaps and bounds by leaps and bounds i mean uh i cannot describe that uh, i'm i'm so much at peace so much happier uh, because uh, you see frugality once you accept that your needs are met and that's all you need then what may appear frugal to others can appear wealthy and you know luxurious to you so i i i have developed myself into that state of mind um, where i think i have all the good things in my life 
and uh, uh, my source of inspiration in a certain sense is a conversation that was uh, held between uh, alexander and the sage dandamis uh, when alexander had invaded india alexander the great and uh, dandamis had told him that you can take my body but you cannot take my soul and what i and you cannot give me anything because what i need is this water from the spring and this chirping of the birds mm-hmm. and and so i'm i'm in that uh, I, i followed that and i really i really in he- i'm in heaven that's all i can say i'm I'm, right. i'm really really i'm in heaven because uh, my basic needs are met comfortably i don't have to struggle too much for that i i have two daughters who are working abroad and if need be i can always call upon them and um, so i think frugality is more of a state of mind once you once i realize that motorcycle is not what is giving me happiness then frugality came on its own i noticed something when i was looking at your bio uh that you had spent some time living in a slum so that you'd see what poverty was like firsthand first of all why did you do it what made you want to go into live in a slum and and what did it do for you you see i first i went into it because as i said i was born with a silver spoon in my mouth and i was a economist and i was talking about poverty i was talking about economic development and it was kind of uh, uh self contradictory I, i was not peaceful with myself that bharat you don't know what poverty is what right do you have to speak about poverty i mean you, you have you have no inkling of what scarcity is so but obviously i cannot i for whatever good bad or i did not decide to become a monk which i could have become but i decided okay Uh, as this much i can do is i can live with the poor so i i took that decision basically to understand what poverty is so that as an economist when i spoke about poverty i could say with some confidence what poverty is now what it did to me was uh, it explained to me that uh poverty is not just because the people are drunkards or they don't work hard and you know that's the cliche uh, the st- stereotype rather uh rather there, there there are multiple causes of course one's own contribution makes a contrib- uh, one's own orientation makes a contribution but i came to realize that the social contributions to the creation of poverty are much more than uh, given credence to and i think we need to look at that secondly it has created a kind of empathy for people uh, one of the most uh, i would say poignant days uh, in that slum was that uh, i used to teach in the indian institute of management which is the india's premier institute of management something like the harvard business school so i went in the morning uh, and in the morning there was a little girl who was kind of playing with me or you know few days ago she was playing with me 
And one day when I came back from my institute, I was just told that that girl had passed away. That that six, the four year, five year old girl. And that broke my heart. That broke my heart. Because it, there was so much innocence, so much love yeah, with those people in the slum. I, I, I was very friendly with them. Very, very friendly. I used to eat with them. I mean, I had made arrangement with one of the families. I would pay them some reasonable agreed amount, very nominal. And whatever they would cook for themselves, they would share with me. So I was eating with them. I was uh, sleeping in the slum. And to just to come back and know that a girl has died for no reason, perhaps I did not even have the energy to find out how and why she died. My presumption was it was uh, some uh, malnutrition combined with some disease, whatever it was. I was emotionally not even a in a position to ask about that. So that has developed a sense of empathy for the people. I think that is the biggest contribution where I could... Uh, today, I have no trouble uh, putting, you know, holding an old rickshaw puller or a coolie, you know, with dirty clothes and, and holding him and clasping him, clasping him with my hands and, you know, rubbing shoulders with him. I have no difficulty because I can see that I, I have developed that sense of empathy. I, I think that is what has come out. I'd like to talk about Buddhism in India and your experience with it. So how, how did you encounter Buddhism? You see, I'm, I'm a born Hindu. And among the Hindus, one of the spiritual leaders, uh, perhaps the most influential spiritual leader of the Hindus today, is a person called Adi Shankaracharya. He was a monk or a sage, uh, lived in the 9th century AD or something. His major, uh, one major feat was a debate with a Buddhist. Uh, you see, after Ashoka converted to Buddhism in India, and then there was the Guptas, uh, what, what is called the golden age of Hinduism. After that, there was a lot of conflict between the Hindus and uh, Buddhists. And a lot of killings and everything. So Shankaracharya apparently had a debate in which he purportedly defeated Mandan Mishra, who was arguing from the Buddhist standpoint. So that was my first exposure to Buddhism, actually. But over the period of time, I've come to realize that that defeat, that so-called victory of Shankaracharya or the defeat of Mandan Mishra was perhaps the saddest point for Hinduism as well. The reason being, that when I took look at the larger frame, Hinduism and Buddhism are so close together, so close together. The, the point of difference, as far as I can understand, between uh, Mandan Mishra and Shankaracharya, was Mandan Mishra said that there is no God. And Shankaracharya said that there is a God who does nothing. Now, to me, now, it seems entirely a semantic point. Because if there is no God who does nothing, and if there is a God who does nothing, how? what the hell does it make? What difference, yeah, what difference does, it, does it make? 
what difference does it make if you were to say that this is an active god and you have to follow him and mandan mishra would say or buddhist would say that no there is no god then i can understand there is a conflict but this was purely i think somehow uh, i am not uh, been able to go deep behind it there must have been some political angle or something to it and that has led to a schism a, a division between hinduism and buddhism when the enemy was West, uh, materialism so yeah. instead yeah. of joining hands with buddhism and contesting materialism hindus and buddhists started fighting with each other and uh, and materialism gained uh, gained the gained the ground so that was my first exposure now i have known buddhists i uh, as i wrote to you i once uh, attended a 15 day course on buddhism at the tibetan library in dharmshala i met dalai lama twice i met um, uh, their uh, government in exile and you know i'm somewhat familiar uh, i would say but i really think that um, rituals aside of course the rituals are very different in in among buddhists especially tibetan buddhism it's the rituals are very intricate i don't even comprehend i don't even comprehend now there, there is a one more interesting aspect uh, which uh, i'll share with you that when i was reading history uh, i i i read uh, ashwaghosha's uh, uh, what is it buddha buddha charita ashwaghosha mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. lalit vista lalit vista these are the two authentic histories of uh, buddha that i know now when i read them i realized that the person whom the the jainas the jains you know are a branch of hindus the person whom jainas know as lord mahavir has remarkable parallels with buddha okay and not yes. parallels in yes. terms of philosophy parallels in terms of their genealogy the wife or daughter i think was no name was yashoda i trace the travel of mahavira and travel of buddha and they are identical the place by place so my my sense is that buddhist there was a split between uh, there was one person who was buddha uh, first there was a split between uh, within the followers of buddha between the jainas and the buddhists the jainas knew changed his name or whatever and started to know him as mahavir and then the buddhists had another conflict with the hindus that i spoke about with shankaracharya so uh, uh, as far as india today is concerned there is very little of buddhism that we see the the most remarkable feature of buddhism in modern india was b r ambedkar's b r ambedkar if you are familiar with he was the he was a leader of the dalits the lower castes of the hindus right okay i know who you're talking about yeah. he gave up hinduism to embrace buddhism and lot of dalits also uh, have converted to buddhism but 
uh, among even the Dalits who have converted to Buddhism, I do not find that sense of Buddha. It's more uh, the, the social structure, the spiritual, the rituals or whatever it is. The, 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 the sense of Buddha, uh, the, 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 his, his core teachings of uh, the middle path or, uh, you know, thing, uh, empathy or whatever it is, they're not practiced anywhere. They're just not practiced in India at all. I mean, even even the monks, I, I've, I've known some monks who would, uh, I don't know what, they have a particular term which where they uh, wear these uh, red robes for three months in a year and go around, you know, uh, seeking arms and bhiksha. But they didn't impress me, honestly. They didn't impress me. I, I, I felt it's all... Uh, what Gordon Child saw, uh, says is a uh, animated, uh, suspended animation. The, the, the inner, the inner core of Buddhism in India, I did, I do not see around me at all. I do not see around me. Have you been to any of the pilgrimage sites in northern India? Oh yes, oh yes. I've been to Bodh Gaya. I've been to Lumbini okay. and uh, Shravasti. I, I think I would have gone. I, uh, my hometown is very much close to the Buddha circuit. Okay. So I've been to Kosambi and all the places, all the places. Nice. And even there, even there, when I tried to engage with the monks uh, in those places, I just could not. I once, in fact, so I, I once organized a seminar in Kosambi. It was uh, organized in a Buddhist dharmshala, and we had. I think about eight or 10 Buddhists and 20 Hindus. But it was all very dry and formal, nothing. Uh, that, that inner spirit of Buddha, I did not find. That's interesting. So, you know, I was wondering about this. You know, I'm a, I'm a university chaplain, among other things. So I'm in the Office of Religious and Spiritual Life. And I'm a Buddhist, <laughs> and, and the university used to be a Baptist school until the 1990s, um, and then they separated, went different ways. And today, the student population is very diverse, and about a third of U.S. college students don't identify with any religion at all. Um, doesn't mean they don't believe in anything but they just don't identify as Baptist or Methodist or Buddhist or Hindu or whatever. They're just, they might say they're spiritual, but no religion. Is that the case in India too? Not, not, not in my assessment, not in my assessment. Okay. I would say that um, uh, the, the, the non-believers, if you can say, or A-believers, <laughs> A-believers yeah. would be perhaps a better term, would constitute hardly three to three percent or so of our population, even of the younger population. I, India is a very politically charged on the religious uh, lines. So uh, the basic fault line, or one of the fault lines, one of course is poverty, which has been brushed aside. The other uh, fault line is between Hindus and Muslims. And they're both largely believers. They're largely believers. So although 
I am I am very comfortable with humanists. I, if I can use that word humanist to you know kind of yeah. identify, I'm I'm perfectly fine. And, and, and um, but in India, I don't see that happening anywhere. The reason being that there is so much religious conflict between these two religions that you don't have the time or the mental space. To, to evolve to that level. So, so you are caught in a political come religious system, politi political religious system, where you can't come out of it. So, uh, although I would, I am quite happy, I am very comfortable, very comfortable with the humanist, uh, but I don't see India going that way anywhere uh, near soon. You know, I think one of the nice things about the West now is that you have so much to choose from. You know, if you want to explore spirituality, you can do just about anything. And for the most part, nobody criticizes you for it. So on the one hand, we have people becoming more and more humanistic, more and more secularized, or uh, with more diverse spirituality. And on the other hand, people becoming more and more fundamentalist. I, I, I don't know where that ends up. What, what do you think in your society, like what is your main goal as a person in terms of spirituality in your society? You see, uh, as you would have seen, I've written a book, Common Prophets of the Jews, Christians, Muslims, and Hindus. And uh, my study uh, shows, or at least I I'm convinced uh, that the Abrahamic religions and Hindu religions have common roots in the Indus Valley. So the way I want to move, or I'm trying to move, is to transform. If that's a big word. Uh, please take it with humility. Uh, you know, I'm not trying, uh, not an egotistic <laughs> statement. But but to move towards changing. Hinduism and Abrahamic religions from within and bringing them closer, anchoring this common, bringing them closer by developing a common understanding, uh, anchoring on the common heritage of the five prophets in the Indus Valley. I would give just one example to explain my point. You see, the uh, the Hindus are idol worshippers, okay, and the Abrahamic religions are non-idol worshippers. But in the Hindu texts, uh, there is one Bhagavat Puran where Lord Krishna, who is one of the avatars in Hinduism, he says in so many words that those who worship images of wood, mud, and stone are no better than animals. Now, that, that jives with Abrahamic religions. So my, my effort is that let us see if we can reinterpret both Hinduism, because after the 3,500 years of their separate evolution, they have gone in very different directions, but the core kernel is the same. 
as far as I can understand. And therefore, I mean, for example, the concept of one God. Hindu, a Hindu philosophy is very strong on one God, just as I mentioned about Shankaracharya, that there is God, but he does nothing. But there is only one God who does nothing. Shankaracharya also says this. So the concept of one God is a common anchor. So if we can, instead of looking at the points of differences, work at some of the core common understandings. And I'm saying core common understanding. No, I'm not, I'm not enamored with the talk about love thy neighbor. I mean, that's fine. That's fine. That doesn't go very deep because it doesn't go into your core religious belief of, let's say, one God or something of that type or rebirth or things of that kind. So I'm the way I would like to move or what I'm trying to do with my limited capacity is to reinterpret Hinduism and Abrahamic religions in a manner that they become uh, synergistic or they become, they, they find a common uh, uh, understanding, common core understanding. And once we can do that, I have hope that if the common, uh, if the kernel of the core is common, then the differences can perhaps be resolved with much more ease because the difference between you and me, see the problem arises when I think that you are a different person and I'm a different person. But when, when you and me becomes your views and my views, although we are uh, sons of the same grandfather, then the picture changes. So that is how I am, I am proceeding on that. Society tends these days, I think, to, to worship money. You know, the governments are all set up to allow the rich to get richer, you know, which and often at the expense of the poor. And we see where that uh, tendency has created, you know, global climate change. I think it's affected create, uh, the rise of nationalism. You know, all of those things, I think, are a result of society putting more and more emphasis on wealth. And your life, it reflects the opposite of that, that, you know, we're actually happier if, if we're practice contentment, not just amassing more. Can religion play a role maybe in helping to reverse that? I mean, all of the main religions really promote generosity and don't promote amassing a lot of wealth. As a, so how can religions working together maybe turn that trend so that we start thinking more about things like preserving the planet for everyone and bringing people together instead of apart? Well, I think religion has a great role to play, a great role to play. As I mentioned previously, the core thinking of modern economics is that consumption begets happiness or welfare. Now, this presumption or this axiom is, is directly challenged by all religions, as you just said. The difficulty is that the, all, I think all, I think I can use the word all, all religions have their political structures. And those political structures require money, it requires numbers, it requires, uh, you know, uh, organization. Um, 
you know, uh, Buddha said, Buddham Sharanam, Buddham Sharanam Gachami, uh, Dhammam Sharanam Gachami, and Sangham Sharanam Gachami. I think you, you would have heard that. Or shall I yes, sure. We've all, we've all said that. Yeah. Okay. So what the significance is that either you have to follow Sangham or Dhamma. The two don't go together. That is my understanding. That if you're, uh, I mean, one can interpret it in different way. I'm not uh, in a position to debate it, but I'm just explaining my understanding. The moment you bring in organization into a religion, many of these, uh, you know, uh, disturbances are inevitable. Because um, in organization requires numbers, it requires money, it requires power. And once you start amassing all of that, you, you, just as Jesus Christ says that uh, a rich man cannot go through the needle, uh, a camel can go through a needle, but a rich man cannot go to heaven. Or, or the, the Hindu texts say that the, the best of Brahmin is he who does not know from where his next meal is going to come. So religions have a role, but in order to actualize that role, we have to come to the true religion and get out of this uh, political uh, organizational system. On this point, I, I'm not sure if I can say anything uh, uh, confidently about Buddhism, but I think Hinduism has a strength because we are not an organized religion. We don't have one book. We don't have one organization. We have probably 1,000 you know, denominations or maybe 10,000 denominations. So the, the religions have a role to explain to people that motorcycles don't beget happiness. That is the role of religion. But they are not able to do it because they are themselves into their organizational structures, which has to be fed with money and, uh, and power and numbers and land and so on and so forth. It just goes on and on. So the key question for religion is uh, how do you get out of this organized religion into a more disorganized, not disorganized, unorganized, uh, individualized religion. That uh, movement will perhaps lead us in that direction. That is how I feel. It's very difficult though, because if you don't have a structure you need a place for people to meet and that sort of thing. It'll be interesting to see what the COVID era has done with that because I can talk to a thousand people all over the world now. But you, you know, on that point, uh, I, I, I take inspiration from uh, Bhagavad Gita, Gita you would have heard of. And I, I always ask my friends, they tell me which organization is the is taking the responsibility to promote Gita. There's none. There's none. But Gita moves. Or to give another example, take a philosopher like Kant. There is no organization that is promoting Kantian philosophy. This is the organized 
representation of Kantian philosophers. Now, so my, my uh, thinking is, I, I don't know how and whether and it is feasible and whether I can do it, you know, come close to it, is that if you can distill your thinking in concise ways, like uh, maybe Dhammapadam or Gita or uh, Kant. Um, I'm, I'm not so much enamored, honestly, about Bible with due regards because it's too political, too political for that reason. It's, it's, I, nothing against. I'm very fond of uh, Moses and Abraham and all that. But I, I think some uh, work has to be done to revive the philosophical elements of these religions and that is that will uh, whether this uh, and if we can distill that philosophy put it clearly then i i think truth has its own momentum see i i i i don't think truth needs human beings to uh, you know move it uh, truth has to move itself uh, uh, if you ask me how i don't know I would yeah, know. well, that's that's where we run into the problem. That's how do you do but, it? But, yeah, but I think truth moves itself. So if we can, I think it's a my shortfalling. I think it's a, my incompetency. If I cannot put the truth in a manner that is comprehensible to the common man or the intellectual, bereft of the political and religious structures, then it is my incompetence, and that is where we need to go rather than to fight with the religious structures. Uh, build something which is so condensed and so distilled like uh, uh, Gita or whatever, or the Gathas of Zoroaster, uh, uh, which, which moves itself, which can you know, uh, communicate its theory to the people without having to build a structure. And I see what you just mentioned that about 30% if you said uh, people are not uh, A-believers, that is a very positive uh, development because these A-believers are willing to accept some truth like that. So that is where we have to go. The time, uh, the, the real problem from the religious angle, both for the Buddhism, Jainism and Hinduism as well as for the Abrahamic religions is to go inside their own religions and to recover the inner self and to uh, you know develop that sense of peacefulness and dialogue with other religions on that common core ground i think that is what we need to do Thank you for joining me for episode 17 of The Adventures of Sariputta and Mogalana, and many thanks to Bharat for spending his time with us. I hope my conversation with him gives you some ideas about how you might apply the teachings of the Buddha in your own life and livelihood. Now go save the world.